We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, 12 to 19, which was read for us earlier. N.T. Wright, who's an English New Testament scholar, tells this story. He says, A relative of mine likes to tell of an occasion when he flew with some business um, friends to Ireland to watch a rugby match. And when they got off the plane, there were no customs officers waiting to receive them, to check them through customs. And so two or three of them went into the official booth and put on the caps that they found there and uh, inspected the passports of the other people who were arriving. And uh, they had no official authority, but it seemed to work. Um, And Wright says, I've often wondered hearing that story, what happened when the real customs officers came back. But on that point, as is so often the case with history, history remains silent. Um, And then Wright continues, that must have been how Jesus appeared to many onlookers. He held no public office. He wasn't a priest. Priests had the job of teaching people God's law. He wasn't part of any of the well-known pressure groups such as the Pharisees who had their own opinions of how the law should be kept, which they tried to insist on for society as a whole. Jesus hadn't any formal teaching or uh, training as a teacher. And yet there he was, so to speak, in the airport arrival zone, telling people what to do, giving some people permission to do things they weren't normally supposed to do. Who did he think he was? That is, in fact, the main question Luke wants us to ask. As we've been following Jesus in the past few weeks, we've seen that the custom officials do show up, so to speak, right? The Pharisees show up with the teachers of the law, and they're not happy with how Jesus is teaching the people and what he's letting them do. And so another New Testament scholar, Michael Wilcox, puts it this way. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had been universally popular. But as all over Galilee and Judea, the news of him was uh, arousing an interest. It was doing so not only among the common people, but also among the religious leaders. And the latter viewed him with a more critical eye and began to see strange, indeed even dangerous, tendencies in what Jesus said and did. Jesus was forgiving sins, which was something only God had the authority to do. Worse, Jesus had invited a tax collector to be one of his disciples, and he then ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, which we saw two weeks ago was a completely scandalous thing to do. It was to say, these people are my family. This is who I belong to. This is who I am. Then to top it off, Jesus broke the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. And when they called him on it, he pulled rank on them. He compared himself to the great King David and he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, that was enough. We saw last Sunday that the Pharisees by this point were livid and they went out to begin to plot what they might do to Jesus. And so to quote yet another New Testament scholar, already Jesus has been judged and found guilty And the shadow of the cross has fallen over the story. So what would you do at this point if you were Jesus? God has given you a calling. You're faithfully and courageously carrying out that calling. You're growing popular and and people are being blessed. They're being helped mightily as a result of your ministry. 
But then you realize along the way that you've really begun to tick off some of the key religious leaders around you. They don't accept your authority. They don't accept your claims about yourself. And they might have the power to shut you down um, or to make life miserable for you. And then you realize they're bent on doing just that. Well, I hope you would do what Jesus does here. Look at verse 12. He repeats, or uh, sorry, he retreats. He retreats to somewhere quiet, somewhere secluded to pray. He goes up a mountain to pray, actually. Mountains are places where people often go in the Bible to meet with God. Think of Moses on Mount Sinai. Think of Elijah on Mount Horeb. Jesus goes up a mountain and he spends the whole night praying to God. What is Jesus praying about? Well, maybe he's seeking courage and and strength to persevere in, in the work that he knows he's got to do, no matter the consequences. Or maybe he's seeking clarity to, to make sure he is on the right track now that he's arousing uh, rejection and um, opposition. Or maybe now that some key leaders and influencers among God's people are against him, maybe Jesus is seeking God's direction to find out what new course to take in his ministry now that he faces this danger and certain doors are closing to him. We don't know what Jesus prays about. Luke doesn't tell us. But what we do know is what Jesus did the next morning when he had finished praying through the night. Jesus calls all his disciples, all his followers to himself. And from among them, he chooses 12. And these 12, he designates to be his apostles. Clearly, after Jesus had prayed about it, he had discerned that this was the next move that God would have him make. To choose 12 of his disciples to be close to him in a special way and to be his apostles. Why? Why choose a smaller group from among Jesus' many disciples? Why designate them as apostles? And why pick 12? Well, first, why focus in on a smaller group of disciples? Well, it seems that Jesus was preparing for the future. Um, now that the Pharisees are uh, plotting against him, Jesus knows that his his days of free and unrestrained ministry are going to be limited. He knows that that time is ticking and if the mission that he has come to accomplish is going to be fulfilled, that he is going to have to train up others and multiply his efforts through them. Second, why designate these 12 to be apostles? What's an apostle? Well, an apostle is literally a sent one, one who is sent. These 12 will be ones a little later in the story whom Jesus will send out to represent him in all the places where he can't be. To proclaim his message, to heal with his power, to bring his kingdom. Jesus chooses apostles. Note this well. As as Jesus begins to expand his work, to spread his kingdom, to establish his people, he doesn't choose counselors or, or caregivers, although these 12 will counsel and care for people. 
Jesus doesn't choose teachers, although these 12 will also teach. Jesus doesn't choose administrators, although later these 12 will have much to organize. But no, Jesus chooses apostles. He chooses sent ones, ones who will go out on his mission to spread his mission. Jesus is thinking big. Jesus is thinking out. He's thinking beyond to unreached places, to unreached people whom he loves and wants to reach. And so he chooses sent ones. He chooses apostles. Third, why though 12 apostles? Why not 10 or 5 or 25? Why 12? Well, 12 is a number with a very particular significance in the Bible, right? God's people up to this point in time had 12 tribes coming from the 12 sons of Jacob. 12 was the number of God's people. To be one of 12 was to be a leader, to be a founder, in fact, of God's people. And remember what has just happened in Luke's story. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have rejected Jesus. The leaders of God's people have passed judgment on him, on his teaching, on his mission. They've rejected his claim to be the one sent by God to forgive sins. The one who's a doctor for the spiritually sick who could call sinners to repentance. His claim they've also rejected to be the long-expected royal son of David, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has come to bring the year of God's favor we've seen, a new exodus into freedom for God's people, freedom from oppression, good news for the poor, freedom from the, for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind. He's come to forgive sinners. He's come to heal the diseased. He's come to bring cleansing and welcome for the unclean and rejected people like lepers. This is new wine we saw a few weeks back, which cannot be held in old wineskins. And the leaders of God's people have said to Jesus, uh-uh, we'll have none of that. We'll stick with the old wine, thank you very much. Keep trying to do this new thing here and we'll find a way to take you out. And Jesus says, okay, let me pray about this. And he prays all night. And then he comes down from that mountaintop night of prayer and he selects 12 new leaders for God's people. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is more than a strategic move or a ministry move. This is a deeply prophetic and significant statement. Jesus is saying, if the leaders of God's people reject me, I will find new leaders and start a new people. By choosing 12 new founding leaders of God's people, Jesus is in effect rejecting the old people. Not the people themselves, but the container that they're in, the old wineskins. The old way of being God's people with its customs and its leaders and its institutions. Jesus is starting a new people. And he's inviting the old people to leave the old container behind and to pour themselves into the new. And that's what we see happening in the very next verses. Luke tells us in the next scene that a large crowd of Jesus' disciples were there with him. 
That's what it means to be a part of this new thing Jesus is doing. This new people he's forming. This new kingdom that he's establishing. It means to become a disciple of Jesus. To follow him. To learn from him. To let him be your teacher and your king. Luke goes on, there were also a large number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem. The people of God already are beginning to pour out of the old wineskins into the new. And then look at the end of verse 17. There are even people from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. We've heard about Tyre and Sidon in Luke before. Do you remember back to the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus got in trouble there in his hometown so much that they tried to kill him? Jesus had compared himself to Elijah the prophet who had gone and had stayed with a widow in the region of Sidon. And Elijah had given God's blessings to her, a Gentile, instead of to God's people. And that got the people in Nazareth really ticked off at Jesus. Jesus, even from the beginning, knew that the new wine of the kingdom that he was bringing was going to be so big and so good and so potent that it would not be able to be contained within the container of God's historic people. No, it would spill over to the outsiders, to the Gentiles too. And that's what we begin to see happening here as, as people come even from Gentile places like Tyre and Sidon to be around Jesus. Jesus is founding a new people. There were 12 tribes, now there are 12 apostles. This new people is built no longer on the leadership of the Pharisees, but it's built on the leadership of the apostles. Not Pharisees, but apostles. Let's think about that. Pharisees are about circling the wagons. They're about drawing strong boundary lines and shutting out those who don't measure up. Apostles are about spreading the blessing, about going out to invite people in. That's what Jesus envisions this new movement of his kingdom being about. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the Pharisees here because they're not that different from most churches I know. In the regard that it's just human nature to want to stick with your own, to, to want to be around people like us. We, we form our ideas of what's right and wrong and what's good and bad. We form our pictures of who we want to, to be around and who we'd rather avoid. Thank you very much. And then we get comfortable in these assumptions and we even get invested in them. And then before we know it, years have gone by and, and none of the kinds of people that Jesus reached out to have been anywhere around us for a long, long time. And we realize we're doing nothing to go out to them. But Jesus chooses apostles. He chooses those sent out to others to, to lead his people. To, to, be, to send them out beyond the boundaries that many of us are comfortable with. Jesus himself has an apostolic heart. And look at the kingdom that forms around him. Look what happens as, as God's new people, both Jew and Gentile, come to Jesus, their new king. Verse 18, they, they come to hear him. 
In the very next verses, which we won't get to today, and in fact with Easter coming we won't get to for a few weeks, but, but in these next verses we will hear Jesus give his, his new teaching in detail, his new law, you could say. It's uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. But first, um, before we, we, we get to hear what the people come to hear from Jesus, we get to see why else they come in verses 18 and 19 of our passage this morning. They come to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by impure spirits are cured. And the people all try to touch him because power is coming from him and it's healing them all. So we see Jesus offering his people two blessings here. His words and his works. His message and his miracles. Wherever Jesus went, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. He taught the people. But he also cast out demons and healed people, didn't he? And later, when Jesus sends out his apostles, we're going to see that he sends them out both to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. To proclaim his words and also to do his works. And likewise, when we get to the book of Acts, which is Luke's sequel to his gospel, the apostles and the others in, in the early church will again both share Christ's words and they'll perform his miracles. Words and works, message and miracles, they're both part of this, this new wine. They're both characteristics of the kingdom Jesus is bringing. In fact, when the Apostle Paul faces opponents of his uh, who were, were teaching against him in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, um, he, he says something which I find very challenging personally. He says of those opponents, yeah, but can they do what I'm doing? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. But today we've made it mostly about talk. We're good at the message. We're not so comfortable with the miracles. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because talk is cheap. Talk is easy. <laughs> it's easy to talk about Jesus. We've got a Bible full of verses and stories that we can tell. But miracles, we, we can't fudge them. We can't um, fake them. The, miracles take faith. They take some kind of connection with heaven that many of us don't think we have. Or maybe it's because we've um, been turned off by some of the, the healers who've made a big spectacle of themselves on TV or, or elsewhere. Some of them are frauds. Some of them are just in it for the money. Um, some of them have dodgy theology, as the Brits like to say. Um, some of them just have collars who are too wide, which are too wide and, and accents which are too thick. They have too much makeup and too much glitter on their clothes. And we say, if that's what healing looks like today, I don't want any part of it, thank you very much. Or maybe it's because ever since the Enlightenment, people have been skeptical of miracles. Um, some of us probably are too. Science has taught us to look for rational explanations and, and to discount that which can't be explained as, as um, legend and superstition. And so liberal scholars have gone through the Bible and they've cut out or explained away all the miracles. And conservative Christians, of course, have criticized them vehemently for doing so, but in some ways they've done the same thing. They've said, well, I guess those, those things happened back then in, in Bible times, which is sort of a fairy tale world anyway. 
but they don't happen anymore. Uh, we live in the real world today, and we don't expect those things to happen. And, and yet we can't talk about the story of Jesus in the Gospels without witnessing miracle after miracle. Not because Jesus was a show-off, but because he had come with authority and power from God to put broken people, to put the broken world back together again. Jesus had come to heal. He'd come to restore. He'd come to give back what had been lost. He came proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the reign of God, where God is in charge, where God gets what God wants, takes place. And what God wants, Jesus shows us, is for his people to be made whole again so that they don't suffer anymore. And Jesus meant it, and so Jesus did it. He made lepers clean. He let, helped blind people see again. He helped cripples get up and dance. He wrestled free those who were captive to evil forces as he cast those spirits out and set those people free. This was his kingdom coming. This was the good news of salvation in action. This was heaven coming to earth, the eternal future breaking into history now. Let me ask you, do you think people will be sick and broken and bound up in heaven? No, of course not. Because it's God's will, it's God's best desire to make us whole, to, to, to take away our suffering. And that's what Jesus came to do. And then Jesus sent his apostles to do it too. And then under the apostles' leadership, the early church kept doing it. Sure, not everyone got healed, and there are several reasons for that. Um, some didn't really want to get well. They become so invested in, in the, the role of, of being the one who got taken care of. They, they didn't want the responsibility that comes with being healed and hold again. So they didn't want to get well. Others didn't want the kingdom that Jesus had come to bring. They didn't believe that God was in what Jesus was doing, and so they wanted nothing to do with it. Others, for some mysterious reason, God told to wait. God said to them, in effect, there's something I want to accomplish first through this sickness before I take it away. Right? Because the kingdom hasn't fully come yet. We're, we're still waiting for it in many respects. The theologians... I've used this phrase before, talk about the already but not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom has already arrived, but it has not yet fully arrived. And so sometimes God answers our prayers for healing by saying, yes, but not yet. Yes, you will get healed. All my children get healed. But I'm asking you to wait for it until later or even until you pass through death to the life and the healing on the other side. The problem is that while it is true that God does um, ask us sometimes to wait, and that there is a not yet dimension to the kingdom, the problem is that many of us hide behind the not yet. After all, if we don't ask God to do a miracle, then we won't have to get disappointed if it doesn't happen. And, and God won't get, em, get embarrassed, and we won't get embarrassed. You know, so we're covering for God by, by not asking him to, to do anything. Uh, 
Um, and then we can piously say, well, you know, someday in heaven God will heal me, but in the meantime I'll suffer along with this. But what if God does want to do that miracle now? Well, then we miss out on God's blessing and by not asking, and God misses out on the glory of displaying more of his power, of, of bringing more of his glory in our lives. One look at Jesus' ministry suggests that God wants to do more of the miraculous than we give him credit for. And so why not ask? Why not ask this morning? Um, and so as we conclude, we're going to give, give you two ways to ask today. Um, first, as we celebrate communion this morning, in a few minutes, there'll be a chance to, um, to ask uh, near the end of our communion time, and I'll say more about how that'll work in a, in a couple minutes.